You are listening to Faith at Work. Now to our host, Carl Grant. Welcome to Faith at Work. I'm Carl Grant, and today's podcast will feature the 2010 High Tech Prayer Breakfast in the D.C. metro area where Britt Hume was the speaker. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's, it's a great pleasure and honor to be among you this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, my wife, Kim, my dear wife, Kim, was a little concerned this morning about my appearance here because she said, you know, it's early, people have got to get to work, you can, you know, you're going to get up there and deliver some extended remarks, make people late. <laughs> said, I said, well, I, I don't know. She said, well, what are you going to talk about? And I said, well, I'm going to talk about my, you know, my walk with Christ and, and all the progress I've made as a Christian. She said, that won't take long. <laughs> I'm always worried as well when I speak anywhere that the expectations will be built up about me that I'm some dazzling, stem-winding speaker and that, that, that I won't be able to deliver. And I was at first concerned and then actually relieved when I looked at the card that you all have before you and it identified me as, well, let me put it this way. If you look at the title that's been ascribed to me, there's a, an unusual spelling of the word analyst. It's, it seems to indicate that I am a senior political analyst. <laughs> There's probably not a small number of people who think that's a perfectly accurate description. <laughs> I'd like to take you back, if I could, to the early months of 1998, which were a time of enormous promise uh, for me and for my family. My great daughter, Virginia, who's here, whom you just saw, was about to be married in March to a young man that all of us were crazy about. Um, we were all excited about that. I had been at Fox News for one year. Fox News, I want to make sure you understand, was a very small, really fledgling news operation whose future was, in the minds of many, very much in doubt. Uh, the atmosphere was very different from the atmosphere today. But I had just been asked uh, to start a new program called Special Report, well, it was, came to be called Special Report. And uh, I was excited and, and anxious about that. It was supposed to go on the air in March, and we'd had to actually start it early, and we were struggling with it. But I was excited about it. Um, my wife, Kim, uh, was the Washington bureau chief of Fox News. And she was an exceptional manager and an enormously capable woman, and the job was fitting her like a glove, and we were all very excited about that. And my son, Sandy, uh, Virginia's younger brother, had followed me into journalism after a very uh, successful uh, school and college career. He was an all-metropolitan lacrosse player at Landon School, graduated with honors, went to Middlebury, graduated from there with honors. Uh, he'd gone into journalism. He worked for the Hill newspaper where he broke a big story about the rebellion that ultimately toppled Newt Gingrich as the Speaker of the House. Uh, he had just been named a correspondent for U.S. News and World Report. He was very excited about that opportunity. Uh, he was a contributor at Fox News, and he'd only been on the air a few times, a couple of times with me. Now, I want to point out to you that in those days, being on Fox News was second best to the Witness Protection Program for <laughs> being invisible. 
So that was the setting one day in early 1998 when I came into the office and was sitting at my desk and my assistant came in and she said, there's someone here to see you. He's an Arlington County police officer. And this man in plain clothes came in and sat down on the sofa in my office and he told me that my son was dead. Sandy. And he told me that, that there had been an episode the night before in which he had been out with some friends. Apparently he was drinking, which Sandy was not a habitual or a heavy drinker, but when he drank he got a little wild. And he'd been speeding, pursued by a police officer, tried to get away in his car, hit a big puddle of water, the car stalled, he was arrested, and I later came to understand that he thought that this arrest would end his life as he knew it, that his opportunity that the magazine would be gone, that his reputation and career would be ruined, that he would be ruined. Now, of course, it was complete, to say the least, an extraordinary overreaction, but he killed himself. And it was a shock. It was a shattering loss. The feeling I had was there was a sense of darkness that kind of descended over me and the sense that some part of me had been amputated. And you know, we go through our lives, particularly we who believe, with a sense that, you know, things will work out all right, that everything's for the best. Well, I wasn't any way this was going to work out all right in any sense that I could picture. And the rest of that day, and it was a rainy day like today, and it was cold and raw, and I went and met my daughter, and we drove out to her mother's house in Maryland. She wasn't there, and we sat there for hours waiting for her to come home to break the news to her. It was horrible. And yet, you know, I had gone through my life as a kind of nominal Christian. If someone asked me if I was you know, a person of faith, I'd say, well, yeah, I guess so. And, uh, well, what are you? I would say, well, I'm an Episcopalian. I went nine years to an Episcopal boys' school in Washington. I went to chapel every morning. I was baptized and confirmed in the Episcopal church, so I supposed that I qualified as a Christian. But I went through my life, Landon, much as you did, not thinking day by day about God or Christ or any of the rest of it. Um, I, never, I never really tried to confront the implications of what I supposed that I believed. And yet in that dark hour, I had this very strong sensation. Once the initial shock and horror had worn off and I'd had a chance to rest a little bit, I'm talking about a day or so, I had this odd sense that something like this was going to happen, that the phone would ring. And I'd pick up the phone, and a voice on the other end would say, Britt, this is God, and this is the meaning of what's happened. And I realized then that I believed, that that belief in God and his presence and his availability to me had always been there. And I had neglected it and ignored it for decades. But it was a very powerful sense. And this, what went with it was the sense that he was in this, 
that he was there and that he would take care of me, that he would rescue me from the grief and agony and the sense of loss and the sense of, of desolation that grief inevitably brings. And I didn't have any idea, how, you know. I mean, the phone didn't ring and a voice on the end didn't say this is God, but something else did happen. Within a matter of days, and I want to reemphasize to you how obscure um, I was compared to what I may since have become just in terms of visibility. You know, Fox News really was like the witness protection program. My son had been on the air with me at Fox News, so that we probably, you know, a few thousand people may have seen that. The story was a, you know, it was a pretty big story in Washington because, you know, I'm from here and we've been around town a long time, a lot of people, but outside of Washington, my presence on an obscure news channel that was barely getting started was nothing people would have any reason to know about. But I began to receive, this is apart from email, which was voluminous, but I began to receive every day for weeks on end messages. They were letters, they were cards telling me that a tree had been planted somewhere, there were little booklets, there were prayer cards, and I would come home in the evening and open the mailbox and pull out these stacks of messages. And they were from all over the country, people I didn't know, people I had no idea how they knew about what had happened in my life, and above all, I had no idea how they, I mean, my, my phone isn't listed, my address isn't publicly known, but somehow these messages reached me, and I read every one of them. And I felt as I read those messages with the kindness and the love that was expressed in them, I thought, I am seeing the face of God. This is how he is reaching out to touch me at this time. And my assistant and I needed a way to thank people, so we bought had, had some cards made that said, you know, the family of Alexander Britton Hume Jr. thanks you for your kind expression of sympathy. You know, you can write on them if you want or not. But we, within a matter of weeks, we had sent out 973 of those, mess those thank you cards. I just remember that as kind of a data note in all this. And I had this feeling of closeness to God which was in a way a paradox, something terrible had happened. My, you know, I could have been mad at God, I suppose people are. I think God gets that and understands that, but, but I wasn't. I didn't think he was responsible for what happened. Uh, we inhabit a fallen and broken world and terrible things happen. But I had the sense that, that I had this faith that had always been there. And the next question for me was, okay, this thing has happened to you. He has reached out to you and has touched you when you most needed it. What are you going to do about it? And I've been trying ever since to face up, as I say, to the implications of what I believe. To try, as I've often said to Jerry, not to be a part-time Christian. I find it extremely challenging. Uh, in the business I work in, we are absorbed uh, day by day in the most worldly matters politics and governance and political conflict and and the and the in that whole world um, but I'm working on it 
And I have tried, uh, I must say, to, to, to grow in faith. You know, I'm, I'm as a, at, at St. Albans School where I went, you know, we went to chapel every morning, and I, even to this day, can pretty well recite the, the, the congregation's piece of the morning prayer service, the old one anyway, from memory. Um, and I have, you know, had some knowledge of the Bible, fair knowledge of the New Testament, which we as, we as Christians, of course, focus on. But I, except for knowing the sort of mythical stories or the or the or the legendary stories of the of the Old Testament, you know, uh, the Ark and Jonah and the whale and the coat of many colors and and Samson and Delilah and all those familiar stories, which are which are so much a part of our culture, I didn't know anything about the Old Testament to speak of. And I this year, just to give you an example of the things I'm trying to kind of do to pursue faith, I've been reading the Old Testament. Um, I find it intellectually very challenging. Uh, my wife Kim, who is who has been in a serious Bible study uh, group for a couple of years now, loves it, and she loves the Old Testament. So fortunately, I have a kind of Indian guide at hand, and I can say, "What is this? This is the most blood-soaked deal I've ever heard of." He's what God is. To um, so I'm getting a little help along the way, and I meet with Jerry. Uh, we have a journalist's Bible study, and there's a contradiction in terms, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we get together and, and study the Bible and pray under his amazing tutelage. We have a home church we've organized out near our place out in Virginia, about 60 miles west of here, which rotates around from house to house. We have dinner and study the Bible. It's a great evening. Um, I... Uh, went for the, the, the rector of Christ Church in Georgetown near where we have, a, have our apartment. A wonderful man named Stuart Kenworthy was exceptionally uh, effective and, and kind. And as our pastor in the aftermath of Sandy's death, he preached at his funeral and he was wonderful and I'm deeply fond of him. But the Episcopal Church is driving me nearly to distraction. Uh, and I'm and I'm always always on the lookout for some place where I can go and get a little inspiration because I need the weekly fuel uh, to kind of keep me going. <laughs> I was at Easter service at that church a couple of years back, and they used to ask me to read in church. And I thought, well, that's something I ought to be able to do given the line of work I'm in. And I, I would always get the lesson a few days ahead of time and try to read through it and try to see if I could read it in a way that, you know, without being melodramatic about it, but, the, you know, you know how it is. You go to church and they ask a member of the congregation to get up and read the lesson, and the person gets up, lay person, and drones through it, and you kind of can't hear, and it's a little, and the language is a little uh, non-conversational anyway. So I thought, well, maybe I can, you know, maybe I can make a contribution here by doing that. So I work at that. And I was asked to read on this part of it, the, uh, one of the lessons on this particular Easter Sunday. People would sometimes come up to me, by the way, afterwards and, and say, you know, you did a great job reading. And I would always say, thank you very much. I like to think it makes up for my singing, but my wife says it doesn't anywhere near make up for my singing. <laughs> so I went into, the, I went into the, to the church and they want you to check in before the service begins so they'll know that the full cast that's present to to uh, uh, take part in the service, and I went to the, in the back, and the rector was back there with his assistants, and there was another man there, and he had on a cassock and a very benevolent expression, and they introduced me to him, and he was a, a professor at a theological seminary in New York, and all of them, by coincidence, had all studied under him. So it was a kind of reunion. 
he seemed such a nice man. And I thought, and I said he was going to preach. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. And the church was resplendent, flowers everywhere. The place was packed. Of course, the Easter music is so uplifting. And I got up and read my little piece and sat down. And presently, this guy got up to deliver the homily. And he said, we are Easter people. And Alleluia is our song. I thought, yeah, great. We then got about a 25-minute disquisition on the origins and history of the word Alleluia. And I thought, get me out of here. <laughs> so I say that as an illustration of what I've found to be the challenge and difficulty of, of leading the Christian life and getting the inspiration uh, that you need to, to keep the world from intruding and dominating your thoughts and its ways from distracting you from the ultimate truth that you purport to believe. And I must say that I have been astonished at the way God has continued to bless me after so lifting me <clears throat> in the aftermath of Sandy's death. Now I think about Sandy every day, I miss him. I think about the fun we could have had together, father and son on the golf course, and you never get over a loss like that. But let me just say a few things about the blessings that have come my way so generously from God. Virginia's wedding was postponed until July. Can you imagine? What a great day to have a wedding reception, July in Washington. <laughs> in fact, we had one of those remarkable Canadian air masses descended on the Washington area the weekend of that wedding. The temperatures were mild, the air was dry, the skies were bright. At the, the wedding reception was held at a club I belonged to. The place was beautiful. The son-in-law was a wonderful guy, and the wedding was spectacular. And since then have come two other people in my life, granddaughters Claire and Helen. They're, they represent, I think, the purest love I've ever known. Uh, I used to look at men and their grandchildren and I would say, what is the matter with that man? <laughs> He, he's, a, he's an accomplished person. Why, why is he down on all fours? And why is, he, why is he speaking in monosyllables? Ladies and gentlemen, I've done it all. Their dominion over me is utter. And my daughter, of whom I am enormously proud, has, has become one of the people I most admire in the world. Uh, she worked for a number of years for the, uh, the Washington firm Quinn Gillespie, uh, Ed Gillespie and Jack Quinn's company. She still remains affiliated with that company. She's gone out on her own in the communications world and she's, she's thriving. My son-in-law has become a vice president of the National Geographic where he's doing very good work. Uh, granddaughters are soaring. My wife, uh, whom, uh, when I met my wife, Kim, she was the single most dedicated career person I've ever seen. 
And the one thing I learned that if I was going to have a successful relationship with her, I didn't I needed to be careful about getting between her and her work. She is 11 years younger than I am. She retired two years ahead of me, which is, was an astonishing development in itself. She keeps to a skit. She, she would, by the way, was a, became a vice president at Fox. She was a superb Washington bureau chief. She couldn't have done the job better. Um, it was a great success. Uh, Fox News, of course, has proved to be, I mean, being in that, I mean, being at Fox News was a, for me was a case of being in the right boat when the tide went up. Fox News has become, has become now the dominant cable news channel, uh, and the program I worked on became, you know, a kind of a rating success, thanks to the hard work of many hands. And I retired a couple of years ago to pursue, as I told Bill O'Reilly on his show one night, uh, three things, God, three Gs, God, granddaughters, and golf. <laughs> I'm not claiming here that I have done it in exactly that order, <laughs> but I'm working on it. So, as I stand here before you today, I must say <clears throat> that thanks to the extraordinary generosity and grace of God, the promise that we and my family all felt in those early months of January 1998 has been realized in ways that none of us could have imagined, in ways that prove that you know, God has a far more bounteous set of gifts to bestow on us and a far greater sense of imagination than any of us can possibly fathom. I feel enormously blessed. I struggle to be something better than a part-time Christian. I'm working on it, as I'm, I know many of you are, and um, I hope that you have found me today to be a great analyst. <laughs> God bless you all. Thank you, Brett. Thank you for listening to this edition of Faith at Work. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm Carl Grant. Please follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Faith at Work Radio. And for more information on the High Tech Prayer Breakfast, please visit www.hightechprayerbreakfast.org. You've been listening to Faith at Work with Carl Grant.